morning. And what a lovely day it is. Rise and shine, rise and shine. Before our program of early morning music, here are two announcements. Can you stop this thing? We can't. Why not? It's automatic. Who controls it? Who runs this place? I don't know. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to the IWMP podcast at the Intermillennium Media Project, where you get your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and strange shifting family dynamics. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we sometimes watch television together. I am not your son. I'm afraid. Oh, wait, I am your son. You hey, are. That works. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that you being my son and you being a free man are not necessarily yeah, exclusive. They're not. they're not. You do make me watch shows, but this was not a forced instance. This was, this was absolutely <laughs> not. I do have enough control over you, however, to ask you to hand me my coffee, which I forgot before I pressed record. Okay. And nobody wants to hear me without coffee. Maybe nobody wants to hear me with coffee, but... You know. I think our listeners would like to hear you with coffee. And <laughs> Thank you. But, yes, this the, you, you've you shown me a show that you've shown me in the past, but we've rewatched some of the episodes, and I was excited for this episode when we'd get to it. Yeah, this is kind of a special IWMP podcast because, unlike some of the, the shows that we've done, very often I will... We'll just spring them on you as, as late as I possibly can, like that day or the night before, and show you some of these so I can really get a fresh reaction from you. This is intentional, like, you don't have enough time to Google it. <laughs> right. Just, like, throw Lidsville or, or uh, Stripes or something at you and, uh, and let you deal with it. But this is something that you and I actually watched over the course of a week or so years ago. And... This this show that we're going to talk about today is really one of the reasons that this podcast exists, because we uh, this was a show that was really important to me when I was a kid. I wanted to share it with you, so I got the DVDs and I showed it to you, and then we just couldn't stop talking about it for days and days, and that's what we do here in front of microphones. I'm pretty sure I remember when it was. Yeah? I'm pretty sure it was the summer of 2007. 2007, okay. Because I'd already been in high school for at least one year, and I'm pretty sure part of the reason why we had all this time to watch it is because it was either during or right after I'd broken my arm on the first day of summer after high school. Okay. I had to think back for a minute and figure out which break of your arm that was, because yeah. there were a few. There have been multiple, and it's all the same arm. Yeah. Interesting facts about Ian time, but yeah, but this is left, le that gave me an opportunity, and the fact of the timing of when it was for me is also then important, because this well, show... <laughs> well, just in case um, uh, there are people who didn't figure it out from your introduction, we are going to talk about The Prisoner. Dun, 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 yeah. <laughs> I love that theme song. That is great music. It does stick with you. Oh, my goodness. So The Prisoner, the, of course, the um, the ITV TV series from 1967, was it? I believe so. Let me... I am. Created, written, directed, starred, uh, hallucinated by uh, Patrick McGowan, 
amazing actor who we have have seen plenty of times uh, outside of the prisoner one of the best guest stars in Columbo history. He had some of the best Columbo episodes. And he did. Definitely, I could see some of the same creative madness that was seeping into those <laughs> ones that is on full display in this show. Oh, yeah. This is um, this is Patrick McGowan. I, I read something where somebody involved in it was saying he was he was having a nervous breakdown and filming it is what it seemed like when they were shooting The Prisoner. <laughs> It's a nervous breakdown with props. <laughs> and very cool music. Very awesome music. Very excellent sound design overall. This is a show which... I'm going to get right into some of my comparisons. This is a show that has a a strange, at times otherwise unfollowable plot. If it wasn't for amazing set choice and design... This is set design when they're making stuff that rivals the the highest echelons of uh, Thunderbirds and such design with that that physicality. Yes, and it, it's of that same time. And there's also a music cue. They will give you an object that is painted in the right odd colors, and then give it just the right odd sound. And you immediately, this is a thing and it can do things. Right. They can show you a balloon or a teacup or a, a, a golf cart or anything. And just with the angle and the sound and the music, I don't want to say force, but cause you to think about it in a certain way. You stand next to the dimmer switch and you move it up and down at the right <laughs> pace and you add the right wham. <laughs> and now any lamp you can ever look at becomes absolute perfect hypnosis device. Right. It is now mind control perfected. Boom. And some of that was the acting. The actors just sold so much of this environment and so many of these props. And it, the, the actors made it seem real because of the way that they were interacting with the, the, the environment and one another. Yeah, Absolutely. The as the first episode kind of shows, this is a story about about control and environment and such to some extent. Right. There's there the the village, which is where it takes place, is so important, and it it says something that everyone had to be as on mark in actually producing this as they show themselves to be in the way the village is run to make the village look that way. So just to set this up in case anybody out there hasn't seen it. First of all, if anybody's listening who hasn't seen this, go and watch this. Um, oh, are, are, I, are we I'm, revealing that early a little? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, uh, I, I'm just I'm I'm tipping my hand early in terms of what I'm going to say, but we'll we'll address the binge or no binge later. But um, but in case you haven't seen it and I don't think anything we're going to say, we could say a whole lot about this and still not spoil it because this isn't really a story driven TV series. You can know all about the story and not, and still be bowled over by the experience of watching it. Absolutely. But to set it up, and you can you can describe the pre premise of this series in a few sentences, and that's demonstrated by the fact that at the beginning of like every single episode except the final one. And the first one. And the first one, because it's kind of worked into the first right. one, I guess. They, they essentially give you the setup which is Patrick McGoohan is playing somebody who was a 
a secret agent, some kind of high-level government operative of some kind. He resigns. We don't know why, and that's important. It was over something that apparently got him very angry, but he resigns. This is a man who's driving up to, to quit his job. Warren's dramatic music and thunderclaps right in terms of emotion there's no dialogue in this scene showing him uh resigning it's just him stomping around pounding on his superior's desk throwing down his resignation letter while thunder is happening all around Mm -hmm. but before he gets to go off on his retirement or his post-resignation holiday his He's in the front room of his house in London, and the room is gassed, and he's knocked out. He wakes up again in the front room of his house in London, and then looks out the window and discovers that he's not in London. He's in this other place, one room of which was designed to look like a room from his house. But he's in the village. Cue return of said dramatic music. Right. Da-da-da. And every and every single episode is essentially this person, this retired secret agent, versus number two, who is the ever-changing person who's in charge of the village and who is trying all these various means to get information from num- from our our protagonist, who, when he gets to the village, is not... We never hear his name, but he's given a number, just like everybody else in the village. Mm-hmm. As, as, the opening al- as the openings always state, uh, who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? And then the response is, you are number six. What do you want? Information. That's repeated multiple times, dramatically, and then the cry of, you won't get it. There's this immediate setup every time. And also, I do love that they re-record that opening every time because number two is not static. There's a lot of... There is not... There's only one season of this show. But they go through a lot of number twos as they attempt to defeat number six. You get the impression that when when a, a number two comes in... Their top priority is to break number six and get information. And the key piece of information they keep trying to get, maybe just because it's the gateway to getting more, is why did you resign? But it, I, I get the impression that a number two is assigned, breaking num- number six is the top priority. When that number two fails, that's not good for number two. So a new number two winds up being brought in. And who knows what happens to the old number two. The old, The only number two... Who comes back is the amazing, terrific Leo McKern, who shows up in an early episode and then shows up again for the finale. He is the best number two, he in my opinion. Great. And there are some more shows that I'm gonna wind up showing you that that feature Leo McKern. He's amazing. I look forward to that. But yeah, so it's so it's a and we kind of gave you the the we we didn't explain that in a very efficient way, but you can see how simple a premise it is. And yet they come up with episode after episode of weird and interesting plots because it's all these mind games Mm -hmm. there's almost three types of plots to an episode that i can break it down to Mm -hmm. there's the there's the plot in which 
Six thinks he has escaped, and it's turned on him. Yep. There's the plot in which something new is introduced to the village, and it is somehow brought down by Six. And there's the stories in which Six turns their system on themselves, where he plays the chess game with the first move this time. Instead of being the one, they instigate a, a method to break him. He instigates something to affect them, to mess with them back. Right, because like a good chess player, he is often uh, playing a really sharp offense as his defense. Mm-hmm. There, there's the ones, so there's there's them reacting to him. There's both of them reacting to something, and there's him reacting to them. Right. Or acting upon them. And it all of the episodes in some way, I think you could break down into one of those categories. There's a couple of the Venn diagram, two of them. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's a lot but... of overlap. They get pretty complex. But yeah, there's a lot of them are that number two is attempting a new kind of mind game against number six. And there are some where number six is attempting a new kind of mind game against number two. And there's some where it's more like an arm wrestling match. Oh, yeah. And... It, it's always fascinating because it does. It is a show that returns the status quo. It's a show that can be outside of the first episode and the last two. You can show any of the other ones in any order. And I think that was done. I know that the the order in which they're on are on the DVDs isn't the same order that I saw them in one of the in the rebroadcast when I was a kid. And I think they were broadcast in different orders uh, in different places in the world at different times. So you're absolutely right. There's not really continuity episode to episode and that's kind of the eeriness of it there are things about being stuck in the village that just don't change and there are a lot of other people in the village too it's not just number six you get the impression that there are a lot of people there all of whom are there because they were in some position of having access to confidential information Apparently, people from all different sides of the Cold War. That's one of the things, like, you don't know, are these British agents that are attempting to find out why he resigned because they want to know why he left them? Are these enemies that want to break him and obtain information because he's a valuable resource? Are these third parties that are unaffiliated? Right. It's, it's... It, there's a lot of questions there, and they don't get answered. You can make some assumptions. I admit, over my watching it, I always wind up getting the assumption that single that the number assigned is less important than the number of digits you had. Mm. Because I always saw people with one digit are an important main character. People with two digits are standard townsfolk of some form. Yeah. They might be pulled into something, but they're usually more the people milling about. Right. Three digits we always saw as people with, like, a task. They were the the cleaning crew, the specific specialty crew. And four digits always seemed to be scientists. Oh, I never noticed that. There were four-digit numbers? Only occasionally. But if they had, like, a, a specialist of this, you'd sometimes see them come up with a four-digit number. Oh, I'll have to watch for that again, because everybody you see in the village, they have these giant buttons they wear in their lapels that have the penny-farthing bicycle that is kind of the emblem of the village, and their number, and everybody just refers to one another as numbers. Mm-hmm. Although, number six doesn't always wear his badge. No, yeah, he, that's part of his rebellion. Does. He, 
But he's distinctively notable by his jacket, which is an awesome jacket. Yes. In the first episode, you see a number of people wearing this kind of jacket. And later on, I think it's it was a wise choice by the designers in the show. That kind of becomes number six's signature look. And you don't see a lot of other villagers wearing that after the first episode. The black jacket with the white piping. Yes. And I, usually a navy turtleneck under it. Yes. It's a very cool look. It is a very cool look. I have been looking for a jacket like that ever (laughs) since I saw it the first time. The closest I've ever come is finding a pair, uh, finding a like sleepwear that has that. Oh yes, your your prisoner pajamas, Uh, as it's (laughs) joked about. But I, I I can't find a jacket like that anywhere. But I, I want one. (laughs) Goodness, there's style to this thing. And yeah, number six won't wear his his number. He won't really settle down, and that's one of the things they try to do to to break him is to get him to get a job in the village and join a club and just sort of get integrated into village life. Because some of the residents there are very old, and you get the impression that they've been living in the village for a long time, and they're just kind of warehoused there, and they accepted that this is their life and they they just make the best of it. And it's not a bad life if you accept yeah. it. It's the, it's, it, you're living in a seaside resort, which is it, where it was filmed, a seaside resort in North Wales. It, it's spy retirement home, but you're put in it much earlier than you expected. Right. I don't know that anybody went there voluntarily, but some of them have now acquiesced and they are, they're, they're not fighting it. And number two is is the one there. There are others who are trying to get out, but most of them have just accepted where they are. Mm-hmm. And they definitely do a good job of just setting up this the village as being peaceful and air quotes idyllic. It's got its its nice seaside vistas. It's got wonderful architecture. They chose an amazing place. Yes, I think it's Port Marion in mm-hmm. North Wales. I, I want to visit there at some point. <laughs> It looks amazing. There must still be, like, package tours there for visitor fans. I'm pretty, for, for, uh, for prisoner fans. From what I've looked up, yeah, I believe they still do package tours. I believe you get a button kind of things. <laughs> That's uh, kind of sick, but yeah, I can understand at the, it. At the same time, though, they keep things eerie. The, the It has the coolest automatic opening doors since show we don't mention. <laughs> uh, there is... There is this this constant there's always music playing in the background. There's always like this PA system in the background kind of keeping an eye on you feeling. And of course there's always these other little oddities. Um number 2 is uh right-hand man. Oh yes, the uh the the little person butler who's who's silent and always a little judgy, I think. <laughs> Maybe it's just my opinion, but he's always just like hmm gestures you on there were there were speculations when this series was first broadcast people watching this silent small butler there all the time just watching everything speculation that the butler was number one oh. he's the one really in command oh yeah i could definitely see that and of course we have to talk about the warden the guy who the, the, the what chases you down if you try to run the beach if you try to swim away oh yes try to yes. run out through the woods yeah this is this is kind of a science fiction show, but so far you can tell there's not a whole lot that's science fiction-y about the basic pre- premise, but the first really, really science fiction-y thing is this warden, 
the, the, this um, uh, enforcement officer that you're talking about, Ian. Rover. Rover is like one of the scariest things in TV from my youth. And it's a giant white weather balloon, sometimes played backwards. But it is so brilliant. It is so amazing. It's just, talk about the sound design. It's have a giant white weather balloon rolling down the beach at you and play the right music, the right sound effects. So it sounds ominous. And suddenly it is the alien thing that'll capture you. It's it is simple, I, and I understand that originally they were going to have some strange blinking lights robotic type guard, and that didn't work out. This was so much better because it's so utterly weird and alien and enigmatic that it's scary. And it's you start- get too close to the boundaries. Whether you're this whole thing is on like the co- coast of a, a, a seashore, you get too you swim out to sea too far. You get too close to one of the boundaries of the village, and the head of control, which is monitoring the whole village all the time, calls an orange alert, and this thing comes screaming over the sand to get you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they show it bubbling up, and it pops out of the water, and it's screaming at you as it runs. Right, it's it like makes the... this weird roaring noise. Yeah, and... <sighs> kind of noise. It's like the worst video game Easter egg ever. You hit the invisible wall, and the Easter egg pops up and tries to kill you. <laughs> it is brilliant. I love it. At the same time, though, he is like the most anti-toyetic character ever. I mean, the the action figure of Rover is a ping pong ball. I, That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's kind of cool, though. I mean, you give me a ping pong ball that can play that noise with a button press. You know what? I'll pay you for it. That's awesome. <laughs> Dang it. I got to make that now. I'm going to have to make we'll, that. We'll see that show up on itemcrafting.com pretty soon. The the Rover action figure. <laughs> with real with real horrifying roar action, yeah. <laughs> you got to include a little, a, a tiny battery operated fan to move it around. You know, with <laughs> yes. real rover action. Oh, absolutely. And when it catches up with you, it's they have these quick shots of like a person being kind of trapped inside it, or it envelops the person to knock them out, and then rover can apparently grab people and pull them back to shore or whatever it needs to do. Yeah, Again, it, it's just enigmatic. You don't know what's going on here. It never explains itself, but it's somehow like able to just bludgeon you or like cut off your air supply enough to knock out or like grab you and drag you places. It's got a, a grip of some form. Yeah. Or some kind of mind control wave, because that's the other kind of science fiction technology you see at various times throughout this uh, series is that they apparently have like the absolute cutting edge technological hypnosis and mind control and drug therapies and things like that to disorient you and hypnotize you and all kinds of things. And, and number six is susceptible to those and is really thrown off by some of those, but ultimately there's something that brings him back to reality and he recognizes what's being done to him. And that's enough to get him back in the game. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's in the other kind of science fiction. It's not ray guns and stuff, but it's it's really science fiction that was very much on the edge of, of, of being real back in the early 60s in this height of the Cold War, especially you go back and read some of the stuff the, the CIA and the KGB were involved in at the time. Oh, yeah. This is, this is science fiction of cameras and pharmaceuticals. 
Right. Yeah, the whole place is a panopticon. Everything is monitored. There are cameras everywhere. And this circular control room with the uh, with the director of control is, is monitoring everything as a, uh, as a service to number two. There's a book constantly updated about number six, everything right. about him. They've been watching him apparently since before he even came to the village, all through his career, through his youth. And the mix of people you see at the village and the uncertainty of who's behind it, it gives me this eerie feeling. And this is a really a dramatic statement to have made in the, um, the late 60s and during the Cold War. It always gave me this idea that it's not a question of the West versus the East, the uh, NATO versus the... Um, the uh, Soviet bloc, the village represents the fact that if you go high enough in the power and deep enough in the secrets, they really are the same. They are working together. The whole multi-sided, two-teamed structure of the Cold War is being managed from one control center for someone's agenda. And that was creepy. Everything about the village is designed to look approachable, but everything about the village is is also shown to be processed and artificial. It is, hmm. it is theater of everything, and everything therefore is theater. Yeah, I guess you're right. Everything's very stage managed, and there's nothing. It's like animation. There's nothing in any spot that is not intentionally put there. In that first episode, when we watch him learn what the village is deal with the initial repercussions and meet number two for the first times and such there is a walk through the village a tour show you where everything is take you in a helicopter to show you that you can't even figure out where you are from the surroundings Mm -hmm. and one of the scariest moments the first moment that makes it true like horrifying sci-fi outside of this is when we meet rover but the situation we meet rover in is Number two calls for it, and everyone freezes in place. The director gives a direction, and everyone stays on their marks. And the one man who doesn't, Rover, ushers off stage immediately, and the play resumes. Right, that right. I remember that scene now. That was eerie, and it's almost as if the the either number two or or the guy in control knew that this guy wasn't even behaving the wrong way, but was at least thinking the wrong way. And therefore, they knew he wasn't going to obey that command to stop, and they could easily find him and and, and have Rover bring him. Mm-hmm. That other man was a man they already were going to deal with, and they kind of dealt with him in front of Six to show their power. Right, yeah. Or or maybe it was all staged. Maybe he's working for number two and he's he, in on it. He might be. Maybe that, he was the plant. That's the thing you can't know. There are several times through the series where number six gets some kind of an ally within the village, somebody else who wants to escape, somebody who has some piece of information, somebody he can make a deal with. And yet so many times it's, it, 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 it is derailed and it turns out that the person he was talking with was, was working for number two, or at least was going off and then and trying to cut a deal with number two, that... It's in some ways the most disorienting thing for number six is is 
having to assume that even the people who seem like he should be able to trust them the most, he cannot trust. He, over time, he seems to get more and more convinced, and rightly so perhaps, he is absolutely alone here because he cannot behave in any other way. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. I also love the 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 not the greeting but the exit everyone says and he then takes it on himself is be seeing you <laughs> this innocuous little phrase this oh be seeing you kind of friendly gesture that carries all this meaning of we are always watching you are the the, the subject of observation and he returns that back he takes that then and it's the he circles around his eye and little okay gesture and be seeing you with the fake tip of the hat every time. And it becomes a, I'm watching you back. It's right. a, I know what you're doing. Be seeing you. I'm seeing what you're trying to do here and I won't let you win. I'm watching your panopticon right back. Mm-hmm. It also has that connotation of, you know, every single person I see is stuck here, including me. We're all going to see one another because there's no one else to be and no one else to, to see. Oh, yeah. You're, you, I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. <laughs> I mean, as we see in one of the episodes, number six is a man who can be questioned. Do you take one cu- uh, cube of sugar or two? And then, no, I know your file. You don't take any. And he will stand there and he'll stare number two down and drop three cubes of sugar in. <laughs> and somehow, like... McGowan, oh my goodness, man, you are able to act. The the act of putting sugar in your tea as the most defiant thing ever done by man. It is this, like, call to action of rebellion in a way that it just takes this presence to do. And then number two uh, calls that out and says, you can make absolutely anything an act of defiance. Oh, yeah, he calls it out there, too. It's brilliant. And oh, this is where I'm going to get personal again. I saw this when I was in high school. I'm a young man trying to figure out what I'm doing and in a situation where I'm put in a location I don't always want to be in with people who I don't always (laughs) know. And I completely tried to uh, adopted that be seeing you right back. And anyone who knows me nowadays knows that I usually leave with this little two fingered salute because it's this thing that's now just wrote to me. And that's because in high school, I did the be seeing you in the full hand gesture for enough weeks in a row that I made it muscle memory. And it's reduced down into this more minimalist version, but it's still stuck with me because there's something of that, like, I'm aware of what's going on here. Little action that is still, it was, it hit me at a formative time and it's still stuck in that way, I'm not going to let go. So you saw this at a, at a really pivotal time when it had a, a very specific kind of impact. Absolutely. And that's why I'm excited to hear about how it affected <laughs> you, too. Well, when I, I saw this, it was probably I was in maybe sixth grade. And it was because it was uh, being rebroadcast by the local uh, public television station where I grew up. So they were showing it. One episode a week for for 17 weeks. And I gravitated towards it just because of the weirdness of it. As somebody who was interested in things like science fiction and such, there was very little science fiction and fantasy available on television. I mean, there was one TV show that had a 
that, that was broadcast every single night in syndication and had an inordinate impact on me and all of my friends. And it's the, the series we don't, uh, we, we, we've chosen not to talk about. And then there were occasionally these other things like the prisoner. And I had this kind of circle of friends in school and we were all into, you know, science fiction and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And there was like larger, there's the, the larger circle of that group were the ones who were into this outer space TV series and also then Star Wars. And, and yeah, the, most of my friends were in that circle, but then there was a little smaller circle were the people who got into the prisoner, <laughs> the people who were willing to stick with it and were attracted not because it was another series with stalwart heroes and straightforward plots, but they were attracted to it because it was so weird. And it, therefore, it gave you something to think about, gave you something to, to talk about with other people who were attracted to this kind of weirdness. And... That was one of the biggest impacts was it it was one of the first things that really showed me that not everything is for everybody, which is important. But also, yeah, it had it was in so sixth grade. I was in my school was uh, first grade through eighth grade. But I was getting into that kind of junior high age, being a little more rebellious with the uh, the nuns who were running my school and (laughs) and. yeah, it it had that same kind of this this was a model for self-possessed rebellion, not rebellion just by breaking every rule you could find for the sake of breaking it, but being rebellious by choosing who you were going to be and not letting someone else choose who you were going to be. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty rebellious stance in, in the school where I was. It kind of uh, ties into what I think a final view of it from your description and from my own, it sounds like we might agree on a point I want to make at the very end here. So I'm excited on that. I've got a way to look at the entire thing. That might be an interesting approach. Oh, I look forward to hearing that now. Now, when I look back and look at it, this show again, you know, in not in, uh, in sixth grade anymore, I seem less, my focus is less on, number six and it's more on the structures around him and he is he and his actions are illuminating the system that he is stuck in and I think that's just bringing more life experience to this and seeing that that's they were presenting us with a a, a heroic figure but they were really commenting about where this heroic figure is stuck and the what he has to act within and against. Oh, yeah. I was going to suggest we go in and we, we talk about episodes in the order in which we watched them, but I actually think that there's one that we should step in first because it's a fine example of the the back and forth and a fine example of the weird you're talking about. That, sure, yeah. And that's Schizoid Man. Yes. One of possibly the best episodes of the series, and this is a show where I like lot of episodes yes every episode is so different it's easy to to have a lot of favorites just because it's hard to compare them head to head either you like this episode or you don't but it can be just as amazing as some other episode that is nothing like the one that you love Mm -hmm. 
So, oh, how do I describe Schizoidsman's plot, though? It's kind of tough, and usually we we go through more of a, a straightforward recap of episodes when we're talking about a TV show. I'm not sure there's a point to that in the the prisoner, just because it's not about the linear plot. No, but yeah, we can kind of give a, a little capsule of the premise and how it how it plays out. Number six is well, number six wakes up as number twelve. Who is told that he is a a specialist brought in to help break this difficult patient of theirs, number six, and is presented with a dupl- with a doppelganger of himself, who then proves himself to be more accurately number six than number six is, in a double reverse attempt to break number six by making him question his own uh, agency twice. So you've got number six, who's turned into number 12, who is trying to break number six. But the number six that he's trying to break is the real number 12, who is pretending to be number six. So the number six who's been told he's number 12 can try to break him. Yes. We're intentionally going to (laughs) we're intentionally going to layer an effective version of a we'll make you second guess who you are. By pretending we're being incompetent at a first layer of pretending to make you uh, guess who you are. And it gets so confusing. Even watching it, I have to stop every once in a while and say, wait a minute. Is this the real number six we've been following through this series? Or is that the – because they're both played by Patrick Lagoon, of course. And and after they give number, quote, unquote, number 12, a, a, you know, a shave and a haircut and all that, he looks Two exactly bits. like him. <laughs> Sorry, I really have to stop. And it's like, is that the actual number six who's claiming to be number 12 and who's trying to prove that he's not number 12? If it wasn't for costume design, giving fake number six a white jacket with black trim in an inversion, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to know at times. If it wasn't for costume design, the audience would be as confused as number six winds up. Even you're right. It was kind of a spy versus spy, black versus white uh, spy outfits there. But even with that, there were so many times when even the characters were trying to convince one another of multiple layers of identity that it became so confusing in, in a wonderful way. Oh yeah, and they've done things like intentionally spent, and, and later on we get to see the steps they went to fake him out. And they were like electroshock therapying him so that he was thinking he was left-handed and then forcing him to re-act like he's right-handed because he's supposed to be playing right-handed number six. So Right, they make him left-handed to make it harder for him to fake being himself. Exactly. And they, uh, <laughs> they, they use aversion therapy to make him change his favorite food. So then he has to not like the things he has to eat as number six, faking himself. It's it's this layer of we're going to intentionally push you away from yourself and then make you play yourself. And ah, oh. yeah. Make, make you pretend to be who you are, but make it difficult for you to pretend to be who you are. So you start to question, is that really who I am? Mm hmm. We probably sound like we're you know, having a, a stroke or something just trying to describe this because it is just so many layers of weird. And the thing that finally breaks this elaborate ruse is the simplest thing. A a, a 
hurt fingernail that has grown too much reveals the entire trick and number six then turns it on them and almost escapes if he didn't make it his own slip up in referencing the wrong thing that proved he wasn't the plant fake number six they sent in to break number six which he then tried to actually pretend to be to leave on the helicopter right because the real number 12 pretending to be number six gets offed and by rover yeah and then and but and by this time the real number six pretending to be number 12 has learned enough to fake being number 12 he yeah. thinks and he slips thinks up and he slips end. up at the end and there's this number back at square one yeah shake hands good game set to positions <laughs> that is uh, you're right that is one of my favorites because it shows the the intricacy of these plans and plots that they use it's they're trying to get information out of number six but it's not just a we're going to lock lock you up someplace unpleasant until you tell and not let you go until you tell us it's not we're going to subject you to some kind of weird chemical therapy or torture until you tell us what we want to know it's so much more convoluted than that and part of it is it's like they don't want to damage number six they want to get this information out of him but he is still valuable enough, he and his mind and what he knows and what he can do, that I don't know if he ever actually broke. They would want to recruit him as an agent for another side, or they just would want to keep him as a consultant and debrief him on everything he's ever seen, or what. But it's... there are they. You get the impression there are, there are very specific reasons why they are desperate to get information from number six, but they are being very careful with him. It's uncertain if that is because they can't risk breaking him or if because they don't think he would break. Is he just too strong a man to put into a room? Would he would he rather die before giving information if you locked him in a cell? So we can't do that. Yeah, that could be it. And that that comes back up when we talk about the way the series ends. But, uh, yeah, we saw a few others. Um, again, it, the order doesn't matter that much. But we talked a bit about the uh, the first episode, the opening, and we talked a bit about the uh, the schizoid man. Mm-hmm. What were some of the others that we rewatched this time? The Chimes of Big Ben. Yes, that was good. That was one of the make number six thinks he's escaped kind of plots, of which there are maybe two or three, I think. That's the one where he... He thinks he has an ally who gives him information he can use. And he then enters an art competition to make it look like he's playing along, builds an air quotes abstract art piece that's actually a boat, escapes on said boat, gets in a box because uh, the person he thinks is his ally says that this will take him where he needs to go. And she's with him all the time. She's with him the entire way. They get bounced around in a box, being taken via boat and plane. They think they arrive in London, and it is only the fact that the watch he got in a different time zone synchronizes with Big Ben. That in the end reveals he never actually left the village. They bounced him around in in this box on ships and planes and and uh, trucks for for. Um you know, day and a half, two days, just to make him think that they had transported him to uh, to London. I mean, they, when, sh- they show us a ship and a plane there, but I don't know if he actually ever got on one. 
for all we know, they just had him in a box in the basement of number two's office, just bouncing around on some hydraulics for a little while. No, I think they would have. They probably drove him around on these trucks and, and boats and things just so that it would be as real as possible, that he would feel the being loaded from one thing to another, that he would smell the, the salt water. No, and, good point. Yeah, and they then probably just, would do that. But in the end, just loop him back to where he was. I mean, it was really one of the buildings in the village, which had been set up to look just like the offices of whatever organization this secret agent number six worked for. And his boss that he knew from his prior life was there and had come to the village to be part of this and then was heading back to London before he was missed. Mm-hmm. And and yet at the same time, the ally that he found who helped him with this, who the quote-unquote ally who quote-unquote helped him escape was apparently or or ostensibly a Russian agent, although maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was a British agent, too. This was part of the... This all is all a British thing, or may... I, you don't, I don't know. know. You just don't know. It's it, so hard to know what's going on. That's and, what's wonderful about and, it. And that one's fun because it's definitely a number six looks like he has the advantage this time. And so you get to sit the entire time rooting for him and being excited and build up, and you get the same drop that he does. That same... Yes. Oh, you didn't. Kind of gut feeling where it is a it is so good at getting you attached to his victory that when he loses, you feel that being taken away from you as well. And and it you can see the many order. The fact that in the way they we saw it here and the way I believe we saw it the first time, it was early. Definitely got me because it it's like Nope, I'm with you now, Six. We got to get out of here. Ah. (laughs) And early on, um, early on in the series, maybe it was even the first episode, when he says, he tells number two, I'm going to escape. And number two is kind of laughing that off. Oh, you're going to escape and never be seen again? It's number six's response is, no, I'm going to escape and I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy this place and you and the people you work for and everything you stand for. And that kind of scares number two a little bit yeah but he, then when the chimes of big Ch- ben comes along you think are we about to see the beginning of act two it has he escaped and is now or now we now going to see him convince people to help him find this place and get rid of it nope nope they they build up that hope in us as well as in number six although i also have some weird notes here for chimes of ben big ben yeah because that's the one with the, the three sugar cubes a moment but it's also one I, I don't know if we see that number two in any other episode. I don't think so. But he is the most flirty number two ever. Oh wait a minute. Number two in the Chimes of Big Ben with the boat, isn't that Leo McKern? No, no. It's different. That Chimes of Big Ben has a different one. This is the one that like makes the really long speech about watching number six get ready in the morning. And like the weird comments about when you have nightmares, you'll come running to me. I thought that was in that one. It, I, and I thought that was Leo McKern. I'll have to check that. I don't think so. Don't it gets weird, though. Yeah. The, there's a lot of different number twos, and they all have very different approaches. Right. Very there's, different styles. There's kind of, you know, swinging 60s, expensive haircut number twos, and there's the scrawny, hawk-faced government functionary number twos, and there's the weird, boisterous Leo McKern number two. I kind of wish there was an episode where, like, I, if I can think of, cur- like, actors that I've heard of in more modern stuff 
who I would have seen in as a number two. I keep on thinking Brian Blessed for some reason. Oh yeah, he there's was that, a good no, number there's two. that kind of boisterousness that some of them have. That ah, oh, <laughs> I could see that playing playing well. If we could cast Americans, Nick Offerman would be a great number two. <laughs> Nick Offerman's number two would just say. There's not enough plaid here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. that'd be Ron Swanson number two. Maybe. No, no, I think Offerman. he would as well. Would that be Nick Offerman? Maybe. It's just looking at his, his, his you know, online presence sometimes. There's, he might go for that. Yeah, no. He'd have gotten more excited about number six's woodworking project. He would have. He would have been really excited <laughs> about that. Uh, and then we, there was a third episode outside of the finales yeah. that we watched, which was Hammer and Anvil. That one is one of the pure moments of number six is going to mess with you now. I love that one. That one is excellent because number six decides to like start doing stuff just to make number two go crazy. This is, this is a nope. You think that you're going to break me? I'm going to break you just to show I can. And I wonder sometimes during that episode, does number six really think he's going to accomplish anything by anything by this? Or is he just entertaining himself? Oh yeah. It doesn't matter necessarily, but it's so much fun to watch. He makes it seem as if he's got this network of informants and that he's getting coded messages from someone and essentially leads number two to figure out for himself that number six is part of some plot from their superiors check up on number two and to prove that he's not competent for leadership and and it just makes number two so incredibly paranoid that he cracks excellent sound design again the one of the first things he does is just buy all the copies of a record listen to a specific segment and pretend he's taking notes it's totally random he wasn't really doing anything oh yeah this is the sort of thing i love doing though I have been known when I do mess with people, with friends of mine, what I, I don't like do anything drastic. I just turn every pen on their desk 180 and let them like <laughs> get confused that this keeps happening until they realize it's me. I've done that sort of stuff before. It is, <laughs> I completely am like aligned with number six on this. This is the sort of way you mess with people i can understand and he then just piles this on whisper strange stuff to people like order stuff at a restaurant in a strange combination i think it was like <laughs> like walk to a boat and leave three blank pieces of paper under a mattress <laughs> and then like walk away just to it's like, why do you put three pieces of paper? It must mean something. And number two takes those pieces of paper and gives them to his his lab and and insists that they analyze these in every possible way to find the secret message and is furious when they find nothing. Yeah, just t- take a walk and blink Morse code of a nursery rhyme <laughs> right. out to the mountains to no one because you know it'll mess with the guy's head. Yeah. It is brilliant, and it is one of the few episodes where number six is the one who completely wins in that sense. Yep. He doesn't leave. He doesn't do anything, but he does kick that number two to the curb. <laughs> also, it has the best sport ever in it. That is right. an episode. That, that is was... one of the two episodes with Kosho. Kosho. The... Oh, my goodness. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Kosho cast. <laughs> We're going to make a spinoff here. Kosho, the sport which involves two trampolines, a pool of water in the middle, and a railing around 
three of the four sides of this entire thing. Right, with this weird little deck that slopes down towards the water and the trampolines. Get your one white glove, your one red boxing glove, and your uh, and your bathrobe with your <laughs> black or white helmet, depending on what team you are, and judo each other. The first one into the water loses. That's the only things we can tell. Yeah, you bounce around on the trampolines and over the water from one trampoline to another and up onto the rails, and you're trying to get the right position. I, You're right. I do get the impression that the only way to score points is to dunk the other guy in the water. Yeah, because that's the only time we ever see the match end. Yeah. It looks like you're supposed to hit them with the boxing glove and that the other hand is for grabbing onto the railing when you're parkouring around yeah there's some there's some striking there's some grappling there's some judo type throws but you're to judo throw onto a trampoline it's pretty pretty easy to bounce back from a throw when you're being thrown onto a trampoline uh, I mean, this is it's a sport just, i can't play because of previously mentioned arm breaks involving trampolines <laughs> i couldn't do this no. but i may have spent a long while watching the two episodes that have kosho in it and attempting to write down official rules to figure out what's going on because there's, like, a potential here. There's a Kosho revival option. If there are people out there playing Quidditch, even though they cannot fly, their brooms just stay on the ground, why isn't there a national Kosho league? There's all of these trampoline places opening up everywhere. Sure, like, yeah. I'm to... talking, like, get a league going on. It's, you know, score a point for hitting them with the glove. Uh Score X number of extra points if you can get them into the water, and that ends a match. We've got a whole system here. It's it's parkour plus plus trampolines plus a bit of like one on one MMA in this weird way. Right. Yeah, it is. <laughs> there's no MMA. There's no no martial art that mixes more things <laughs> than Kosho does. I might be mixing some pharmaceuticals to originally think <laughs> this up. But yes, Kosho, it is it is unapproachable, but awesome. I, I'm I'm amazed also it seems like the sort of stuff that would have like taken off in the late nineties, early aughts again. If someone had gotten the right hand of it, I could have seen this like becoming the fad thing so easily. <laughs> and I'm kinda sad. I I wanna see Kosho come back. Who's with me? I will I will oh, manage so a, I will you. manage a Kosho team. <laughs> you know, this I, I just decided something. Um because we've just watched The Prisoner, I'm going to bring back a T-shirt design. This is a T-shirt that I sold some years ago. I haven't made it available for a while, but I'm going to I'm going to make it available again. So check the show notes for a link. The T-shirts for the Village Kosho League. I'm going to I'm going to join you on that. I'm going to make a new design. We can post that next to it. Okay, great. So we get, we, we're going to have we're going to have the first IMMP shirts here for. The Kosho Leagues, yes. So yeah, if you want a Kosho League from the uh, the 1967 Intramural Tournament, uh, I'll have that uh, available. And uh, yeah, Ian was going to have something to, uh, to add as well, another design. This will be fun. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I forgot about Kosho until we uh, we watched these again. Kosho! Yes. But, I mean, that's also a fine microcosm of this entire thing. It mixes a lot of stuff you wouldn't expect. <laughs> it, it has an internal logic that you have to piece together through watching it at times. But it's engaging the entire way. Right. You, it, it, it apparently has some kind of rules. Good luck ever figuring out what they all are. But the only possibility of, of 
winning it is just to go with it and dive into it. Mm-hmm. I think this might be leading us towards our final comments, but I'm not sure. I think so, yeah. You've, well, we've, we've given you some... Uh, not quite. We actually no. do have the two final episodes, actually. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, goodness. Believe it or not, this series that just keeps going on, resetting the status quo, even though it tells these strange and interesting stories, it does eventually end. And it doesn't just stop. It ends. It ends very finale. Finally, yes, in a, a two-part ending, really. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they are distinct in style, but they are one story in two parts. Well, the last episode is called Fallout. Yes, and that very much is what it is. Now, it is predicated by the way the episode before it ends, but the episode before it is another instance of an attempt to break six, right? With the most extreme method yet, a full regression therapy work him back through his childhood to try to get an answer so this is um this is the return of leo mckern as number two yes and we even hear him on the phone talking to his superiors about the fact that you brought me back you need to give me authority to use the meth the only methods that might possibly work on this this guy on this number six degree absolute and that's what they call this process that you were talking about, Ian, that they bring him through his entire life with some of their drugs and mind control rays and things and a room full of props. And this is where it gets interesting because I've looked up about Patrick McGowan and he wrote these episodes. He wrote a lot of the show or yeah. at least was directing it. And a lot of people looked at this and said that Patrick McGowan was playing the character he used to on the show Danger Man, this spy character and everything. But the history and the life they talk about here actually lines up with Patrick McGowan's a lot. This young boy, good at mathematics and boxing, Hmm. works at a bank for some time, then goes into a job. In Patrick McGowan's case, it was acting. In his character's case, it became spycraft. But there's this weird, like, autobiographical aspect to this thing as he pulls this this metaphor and meaning out from his own story in this sense. If I like he wrote that. that. But it's this this young man who, even when he, who learns things, is insistent at what he's good at, and when pushed about something, has this this set of internal morals, this... This clear line. I am. I am not a rat. No. He'll take the punishment. He'll take extra punishment. But he won't. He won't kill. He'll, he'll, he'll avoid killing and he'll. He won't. He won't rat people out. If he doesn't think. If he doesn't think he should. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's. He. He's. He. He will admit to being a fool. But he will not be a rat. I'm a fool, but not a rat. And he repeats that. And that comes back. Yeah. And we watch as re-being brought up, Six reinforces this in himself. Even if he forgets who he, he was Six, he forgets who he was, this part of who he is reinforces itself. And hitting that wall of a person, number two cracks in this back and forth. And instead, number two is broken down as this man, like, trying to be powerful and trying to follow the orders 
that he's given and not questioning them. But when forced, he's he wants to question them more than he does. Kind of, we watch this this reversal. Yeah, it's it is as as traumatic for number two as it is for number six, and we learn at the beginning when he argues for and then gets authorization to use the degree absolute that it's this is going to be one week, and it can only end with one or the other of them being dead. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this is the final instance where they, they do give him permission to destroy Six. Right. Maybe the information is worth it to lose the man, but right. we'll get the information in the end at least, finally. Yeah, like, no lesser approach is going to get us the information anyway, so why not? And that, that, So that is why we need to employ Degree Absolute. This, this and the previous episode do also give us the... The silliest interpretation of the prisoner, which is one I do like, which is the longest RV commercial ever, <laughs> because one of the plot points they bring up is this cage vehicle that has like a full kitchenette in it and is this like portable living space that they use to keep things OK in there. But it can be moved around, of course, in case they need it elsewhere. So it becomes the the strangest long form RV ad across the entire <laughs> thing. I'm I'm just kind of like kneecapping the entire intrigue of the prisoner here, but it's a way you can approach it. And I love the way the butler assists through all of this. Oh, yeah. That he is, he's quietly, efficiently silent. The butler never speaks. Bringing over whatever props are needed, turning on the record player or the tape recorder whenever certain sound effects are needed. He's just not stage managing, but he is handling all of the details here. And he's... Uh, always anticipating what's needed next, almost as if, if not there's a script that he's following, maybe that he has been a part of this process before. Yeah, he seems like he's watched this happen. Right. I wonder, you're talking about Patrick McGowan's background. I don't know if it came up in anything you've read. Was Patrick McGowan a Freemason? I don't, it doesn't say anything because, in anything I've looked at. Because... And maybe this is, you know, because I, I'm always looking for for this kind of stuff in uh, in art. There seems to be a lot of Masonic ideas and symbolism and phrases throughout that next to last episode. From the very beginning, where, um, where number two is on the phone. Well, first of all, the, the the fact that the process is called degree absolute, pro- progress through Freemasonry is all about degrees. <laughs> and this is like, you know, beyond the highest degree. This is the absolute degree, the absolute degree then being life or death. And what he says to his superiors in convincing them to let him put number six through degree absolute, like, yes, I am a good man. He will be a better one if you can get him. And that, you know, taking a good man and making a good man better, or the comparison with a good man and a better man, that's also part of of Freemasonry. And this whole idea of this, there's something very initiatory about this whole week-long process. It really strikes me as that sort of high-level Freemasonic 
personal alchemy, that they are trying not just to break number six, but to change him. And you can't participate in changing someone else without changing yourself, which is why number six and number two are locked into this in the way that they are. It is. I'd never, I, I don't, I, I've not read enough of this sort of stuff to follow along that, but I'm intrigued. I hadn't considered it in that method, but I can definitely see what you're talking about. Definitely, it was, it was a kind of initiation of some kind. Oh, absolutely. And it ends with Six breaking two, reclaiming his own identity, and two dies. And the next episode doesn't have our standard opening. It goes right from that point into this final act, where... Six is ask. Uh, six is said you can have what you want, and he says, "I, I want to see number one." And he's taken to this chamber that like has bits from all the other episodes. And this council. Yeah, I don't even know if it's possible to try to relate any kind of a narrative sequence for that episode, but it is just pure symbolic theater. It absolutely is. It is it is bewilderingly strange. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, an entire group of men in white cloaks with black and white face masks sitting at a sitting in this little conference with plaques in front of them that are like labeled as different affiliations you can have. There are those labeled like I think there are like like statesmen and nationalists and anarchists all these like labels people can have and they're and humanitarians and yeah every, every everything a person might identify themselves as being there are one or two of these council members identifying themselves as and they're all trying to look the same yes you're at the highest level it's all the same it's very much there oh you're right yeah and, and uh, the weirdest part for me is when as things start to break down, the guy who's got the anarchist plate in front of him stands up and berates this for not following proper order. That you've, you've broken oh, the conventions right, yes. of society, and this is a problem. And it's the guy who was, has the anarchist plate. I mean, talk about a, I am setting something up to make a point, and you're going to have to really dig to figure out what I'm saying. Because this is a group that is driven up the wall by the singing of Dem Bones. Yeah, the whole thing is this kind of an inauguration ceremony. They give number six this throne on a pedestal to 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 observe the proceedings. And then it turns into a trial of a couple of previous characters, uh, a character who was in the very strange episode um, Living in Harmony, uh, where they, they, they convince number six that he's in this weird wild west morality play and the the uh revivified leo mckern number two they bring number two back from the dead just to talk about it and they don't just bring him back as he was they like bring him back and he they, they give him a shave and he acts like he's younger right he's got his hair trimmed and colored and he's got a shave and he's you know he looks 15 years younger easily yeah they they like they reverse time on him and he talks about how he regrets not rebelling more. And they, 
And they talk about number six being the only man who has proven himself worthy to have an individual identity. But then when they ask him to give a speech, they cheer agreement to drown him out. Yeah, it's like, can you ever really lead people who are only ever going to shout yes to everything you say? They won't even listen. They'll just agree. Because that's what they want number six to do after this trial. And they essentially... Uh, uh, the judge presiding over this trial, they eventually find both the young man who was rebelling guilty and they find the old man who decided to start rebelling guilty. But what they want is for number six to lead them. What that exactly means and who the them is, I don't know. But they want him to be their leader and yet they won't listen to him when he tries to tell them something. And so number six is offered, you know, freedom. Your house is back. Your car is back. And here's a million dollars in traveler's checks and a pa- and your passport. Go off and, and do that or stay here and lead us. And he says, well, let me see you number one. And okay. He goes down. There's more men in white coats. It gets weirder still. Room full of globes. And he meets number one. Oh, yeah. And all along, there's been this in the corner of this this assembly room there's been this like missile silo type thing with an eye with a big electric eye on it and a big red number one painted on it but yeah he he eventually gets to gets uh, uh sent downstairs so that he can see number one and he meets number one and pulls off number one's you know split down the middle black and white mask and it's a monkey face that yells at him then he rips the monkey face off of it and it's himself, <laughs> who he chases around a room and knocks unconscious. Yeah, it couldn't be anybody but himself. It could really it? couldn't. And then he like he, the 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 butler who's now working for him helps him like knock everyone else out. And it's the butler Patrick McGowan, the revivified number two, and the young man who is the rebel. Knock everyone out, fire the missile hop in the RV, and drive away to freedom. <laughs> and although at, in various other episodes we have heard that the village was located on the Baltic Sea, in another one we learned that it was in either Morocco or southern Portugal or maybe an island in the Mediterranean. And yet, after apparently a couple of hours of driving, they're heading into London. Yeah, it's like all of this, and it's like right there. It's almost as if the village was really somewhere in northern Wales. <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> it is. It is this weird ending because if it wasn't for the two other guys, the butler and the van, you couldn't say it ever existed. <laughs> and 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 everyone gets dropped off. The the young man is dropped off on the road to hitchhike. The other three get into London. Patrick McGowan goes and gets his car again. Uh, we watch, um, we watch number two walk towards the house of parliament, I believe. I think so. Yeah. He was in that area. And, and the weirdest one, we watch the butler. Oh, no, we see number two go to the same place that number six went or the secret agent went at the very beginning to resign. Oh, yeah. I mean, that might have been... It was somewhere, you know, near... 
somewhere in that government area in London. But he was going into that same office, I think. So clearly he had some connection with where number six used to work. And but now he's going in there with a very different attitude, it seems. Yeah, he's going in there with the attitude that number six had in the opening every time. Right. Although and happier, not angry. Happier. He's like a chipper version now. And we watch the butler go back to an apartment whose door opens the way everything in the village does. It's like, okay, I've done my job. I'm heading back to work. It's like, oh, great. You weren't even an ally, weren't you? <laughs> this was all part of the thing again. Now I don't trust the ending. Yeah, maybe this whole ending, the way that that door opens, you're right, with the same exact sound, because none of the doors in the village lock, of course, and they always open when you want to go out. They don't open. There's no door handle. It just no. opens up. And his the door to his townhouse in London uh, uh, that we saw at the very beginning now opens the same way the doors in the village do. But it ends with the village evacuated, a missile launched from it, and... Patrick McGowan driving down the road to the same thunderclap he starts it with. That's right. Yeah, to cover his escape, he essentially launches the missile that was standing there in the corner. You know, Chekhov's ICBM <laughs> was there from the beginning of the final episode. And sure enough, he, he launches that to, I don't know where it's headed, if if uh, the, some place in the world was nuked. But um, it does manage to cover his escape. Village number two on the moon. I, 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 <laughs> And this is where I think the, my favorite interpretation comes out. Yeah. A man look. A man faces down every single label he could possibly be reviewed with. Eventually, comes to face just himself, and goes off to do something. Mm. Every single episode of this is modern mythology. Mm-hmm. Yep. A man, sometimes the victim, sometimes just the avatar, sometimes the trickster, faces an environment which is similar but adaptable enough to fit whatever version it is, and it always resets the beginning. And what he learns ultimately is that we are all our own jailers. Yeah, he he, he learns like the concept of like review who you are yourself, get some zen and go, mm-hmm. kind of in this strange, trippy way. There is something classical about it all in the weird way. And I love that. Yep. It's a it's it's a story about a single heroic figure for lack of a better term it is not a a typical hero story in any way no it is it is just different i'm losing words here which is not good for an audio podcast (laughs) we're losing words but we could keep talking about the prisoner for a long time as we have now for what 12 years more yeah but I think uh, we have gone on for a while, so maybe it is time to get to our final questions. I think it is. Well, our usual final question is, uh, the first one is, um, binge or no binge? Should people go out and seek out this series and watch it? Yes, binge. Yes. Although I give you warning, you might not be able to binge a lot of it at once. This is a show that has so much fridge logic and fridge horror and fridge everything you will watch a couple episodes and then you'll be like sitting up and like going, wait a minute, if they could that, then they could this. Wait a <laughs> minute. Wait a minute. How did that plan go through? 
wait a minute how does kosho work you will you will wind up having so many more questions you will like number two does demand information that you cannot pry out of this show you might not be able to watch all of this at once you can't binge watch it like other shows but definitely try to yeah i mean if you want you can move into the village for a weekend and just watch this (laughs) and uh and your mind will never be quite the same afterward which is high praise i think Get yourself a boater hat and a, a <laughs> colorful sweater. Grab your grab your bicycle and uh, you know, visit the village. So yeah, we're agreed. Absolutely, go seek this out and watch it. Oh, and yeah. it's um, uh, we'll have links in our show notes, but also it's available now on Amazon Prime. So if you are an Amazon Prime member, you've got the whole series available to you uh, free. Mm-hmm. Although the DVD is definitely worth it. Getting that physical so that you can go back and you can pull that up when you want if it leaves Amazon, I think is worth it. True. Yeah, you never know how long things are going to stay there. And I don't know if the DVDs have the same captioning, but I, we watched some of these <laughs> with the, clo- the, the closed captioning turned on. And the best thing about them was the description in the closed captioning of the sound effects and the music cues. Like suddenly there'll be a little closed caption on the bottom of the screen in brackets that says crime jazz. Yes. Which is now my favorite genre of music. Absolutely. It's crime jazz. It's crime jazz. Or I, I think Rover got described as like ominous roaring. Something like that. At least once. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. So there's, there's light jazz and there's crime, crime jazz. jazz. Yes. So, yeah, definitely watch this in whatever format you can find it. In whatever format you can find. So that is our one question. We definitely agree on that. The uh, Then our final question, as always, is revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, this is one of those instances we have to acknowledge something. Yeah. They did try to reboot this. AMC did a six-part miniseries. A six-part miniseries I have not watched. Neither have I. And I think that might have technically been a revival, That's, not a reboot. It, I don't know. I They're not clear about that. And everything I have read online says this. When it was first airing, people got excited. Now that it's been out, I hear nothing but complaint. It a, you tried to answer questions doesn't work for this show no no so that i've got to acknowledge is there so yeah the fact that someone tried to uh reboot it or revive it doesn't necessarily answer the question of whether one should try to reboot or revive it no so what do you think revive reboot or rest in peace rest in peace i think that this is a time capsule i think this is uh an instance i think that There will always be number sixes. There will always be villages. There will be number sixes who make themselves a a village for themselves. And there are villages that will find and grab a number six that they that they need to break. I don't think you can tell this story again. I don't think that this story can continue with how it ended or it can be told again with something new. I think that there are, are things that will pay tribute to this and see this as a a thing that that is an inspiration to what it is now but i don't think it can continue i agree i would say rest in peace and keeping in mind that for our purposes rest in peace does not mean 
put it in a box and bury it and forget about it or remember it on its its birthday. Rest in peace means it is complete as it is. And this series, for all of its lack of a single narrative direction, it is a complete work in itself. It has a beginning and it has an end. It has a lot of weird middles. It doesn't need anything else. And as you, you're, you're saying, you could not make anything else that really is part of this series or is adding something to this series. So I say, you know, don't try to revive it. Don't try to reboot it. Let it be what it is and rest in peace and let people keep watching it. Every single generation is going to get something different out of this. And yet the messages that it holds are always going to be valuable, always going to be relevant. So no, let it be what it is and um, and encourage people to keep watching it. And there's part of me that is sad to say that in some ways because reboots and revivals allow a, a, a thing to grow and be noticed more and allow for a person like me who loves merchandise and such and media to see it expand into other stuff. You're not going to we're not going to see pop figures of the the characters from the prisoner I hope we will. I'd love that, but we're. Not, I don't know if we're going to see that. I can't find that jacket anywhere. The <laughs> I, I've looked up about buying those intercom phones that they use everywhere to wire one up for my room. There's stuff like that that could come that you know has a chance if it were to re come back. But I don't want to. I don't want to hurt it. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't want to break what this is in order to get what's in it out. Something that you said a, a moment ago make, makes me think, if there was going to be some kind of revival of this, I still don't think it's necessary. But if it was going to happen, I would be happier to see it happen in some different medium. I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever to make more TV episodes of The Prisoner. I could see crafting a video game or other computer game hmm. based on the prisoner. But then I think about that for a second again, and I think that has been done. You can see the influence of the prisoner and what it put into the culture in so many video games of the last 10 years. This sort of smiley-faced dystopianism and the individual trying to survive it and overcome it. That's that's now part of our culture. Oh, yeah. And, and video games are one of the places we're seeing really interesting expressions of that. You're not going to see Lego the Prisoner. <laughs> no, but I would love to. <laughs> I might have instructions I built somewhere in Lego Digital Designer to build a little minifig-sized Kosho ring. Well, on that note, I think that that uh, that sums up what we're looking for. We're 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 not looking for more prisoner on television, but we really would be looking for the uh, the Lego prisoner set. Yeah, we, we give me some prisoner merch. Yes, please. But I love that show. It. I I thank you for the first time you showed me it because when you showed me it, it it was influential and it affected who I've tried to become now. This. The, the 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 clever the slightly snarky at times parts of me <laughs> are you you have shown me that and the prisoner helped me refine how I'll do that and I appreciate that 
and seeing it again and getting to like want to crack out my philosophy and my psych textbooks and just oh my goodness how deep does this go well that makes me really happy to hear because uh like i said this had a big impact on me and of just the right kind of impact in showing me a certain kind of sense of self that a person could have and it sounds like it had a similar impact on you doing that in the 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 right way for the place and time where you were oh yeah and this is a an influential show in multiple ways. I love that. So we'll be back soon to uh, to talk about more media from back in a different millennium. But in the meantime, uh, Ian, where can people find you? Well, I'll be seeing you on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, I'm itemcrafting in both of those locations. Itemcrafting.com as well. And you can reach me uh, uh, on Twitter, I'm at by Matthew Porter. You can also find me at MatthewFPorter.com. And you can find uh, the IWMP at IMMproject.com. That's where you'll find our show notes and our uh, back uh, episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at IMMPcast. And we've got one more to announce here. We are opening up a Discord. We're going to post the link onto the to our Twitter. So if you want to find us and join us in the discussion there, it'll be there, but it's a place for people to start chatting about the shows we've been talking about. Uh, take a look at the, uh, board I'm not allowed onto, but my dad will have access to, to be able to possibly (laughs) give hints about what's coming up. So you can know what I'll be subjected to and the like, and talk about the shows that you loved when you were growing up and the shows that you've watched now and how they might relate back. It's a place for everyone to hang out and to get to chat about what we talk about here on a more perpetual scale. Terrific. Yeah. So we'll look forward to seeing you guys on Discord. Also, if you want to support the show, a few ways you can do that. One is to go on iTunes, leave a a review, throw as many stars on there as you're uh, feeling comfortable doing. Five is always nice. You can also support the show uh, just by telling people about it, tweeting about it, retweeting our announcements. We'll also have a link in our show notes for Patreon to support the show. And uh, at certain levels of Patreon, you'll get things like advanced notice of what we're going to be talking about. So you can uh, you can binge ahead of time if you feel like it. Ooh. And Ian's not allowed to see those either unless I decide he can. Yeah. You, you, can, you can pay to get access I don't have. That's an intriguing Patreon level we've got going on. So thanks again for uh, for downloading. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. Thank you, and remember, go find something new to watch. <laughs>